Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Daniel Yanis. Daniel is co-founder and CEO of Checker, a now $4.6 billion market cap uh, company automating background checks. Daniel, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you, Aaron. Great to, uh, great to be here. Now, now you found a checker like in 2014. This is just as like the gig economy was taking off. You had all these companies like Uber and DoorDash and Instacart, and they're hiring tons of people or bringing tons of um, gig workers on. You know, to an outsider, it, it looks like perfect like product timing fit. Um, was this kind of explosion of the gig economy part of the original checker thesis, or was this like a really nice like extra layer that kind of came to being? Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's not just luck and random. Um, I had the idea for Checker because I was part of that explosion of the gig economy. My last job before Checker was in a gig economy startup uh, called Delive, um, who was doing uh, retail deliveries, so on-demand deliveries from retail stores. So uh, starting at the same time as uh, uh, DoorDash and Instacart and, and Uber and all the players. So uh, I was in that space, and so that's why... I was early there and I saw that need, that potential need and, and that gap in the market. I mean, I remember back in the day, like doing a check on someone's criminal history was like a non-trivial thing. It would take a long time. Sometimes it could take like over a week to do and it was it was hard and it was it was very costly. And so is, is that why you, you kind of saw that similar need? Yeah, and back then I think it was a painful and expensive and slow process, like you say, kind of for everyone, for all types of employers. But when the gig economy started, that's when things are, were going to break because the needs of staffing and speed and experience for the gig economy are like orders of magnitude higher than traditional hiring. And so, um, so yeah, I was seeing that the current process is not going to scale for hiring tens of thousands of contractors in a matter of weeks. Keith Raboy, yeah, he he's kind of famous for like a, a, a startup formula, which is basically find like a super highly uh, fragmented industry with really low uh, net promoter score with a really low NPS, and then kind of like add a vertically integrated product to, to do that. To me, it seems like Checkers is kind of like perfect example, almost a textbook example of this. Do you think that's fair? And, and like, how, how did you think about it as you're kind of starting up the, the company? Yeah, I completely, and I completely agree with that. Um, I guess I didn't see that quote from Keith Raboy, but when I looked at the market, I saw relatively large markets. Um, I saw a really kind of broken process and, and bad product experience. Um, and I talked to some early customers who also had really low NPS and not happy with their provider. So, uh, and, and the industry is highly fragmented. There's over 3000 background check companies and even the biggest ones have small market shares. So, uh, yeah, it aligns with that. And I agree with this principle, uh, for other startups and other companies, I, I think it helps to be in that situation. Now, to have a complete product, you kind of need to get, and you have to make sure you're getting the information from all these different courthouses. And last time I checked, there's like over 6,000 courthouses in America. Um, and you don't want to miss a bunch of them and then miss, you know, some sort of conviction on somebody. 
what is there was there some sort of aggregator that you were able to tap into to start uh because building all those integrations into 6000 courthouses be really really overbearing for a new startup yeah 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 no it's it's a very complex supply chain and process to to build background checks and uh i think like like every startup you have to start by 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 doing just the most painful part for the customer and then over time you can increase the complexity and 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 go deeper into the you know vertically deeper i would say uh yes for us we we found aggregators they were hard to find but we did find some aggregators even the biggest companies were not doing everything in house they actually were using third parties and different aggregators and so we found a few suppliers who could get us get started and i would say what we focused on working on was the the main pain point for the customer was the product interface it was the there was no api that was a big part of our success and even the dashboard and the user experience was was really old so we focused on creating a great user and product interface on top of kind of the legacy uh, supply chain and aggregators and then we iterated and refined from there but we really started at the i would say the top of the product stack okay so because if i was imagining if i was like starting a background check company in 2014 okay like the first thing i'd be looking at would be like some sort of api because probably a lot of these guys have like a form you have to go in you have to like manually type in so some sort of like api and then probably like the next thing would be speed like you want to get back to them as fast as possible so they can make a decision quickly and ideally in like a machine readable way and then the third one would be price is am i am i or or there's some other thing like that that was really important back then yeah and so back then was the the api was really important there was not in the non-existence so we invented the first you know json open modern api for background checks um, and then the second two painful things for customers were speed, you're right, and accuracy. The, the accuracy okay, of background checks was really poor um, because the data is very fragmented. Um, there is no standards. Uh, there's lots of incomplete data. Is with the that accuracy missing. really on a, there's a lot of false negatives or are there even false positives as well? Both, both false positives and false negatives. And for a background check, both are really bad, right? Like either Correct. you can miss an important crime or you can attribute the wrong crime to a person who hasn't done it, which is also very bad for the consumer. So the consequences are, are high for both mistakes, um, but the accuracy rates were extremely low because, and, and the background check, with, the accuracy was low and the background check was slow because actually the legacy competitors and the industry was doing the work manually. So they would actually have uh, outsourced, you know, workers reviewing the data, matching the fields, doing the filtering and, um, and composing the, the background check by hand, which is expensive, slow and error prone. I can imagine why they were doing that because like, doing all these merges actually really you have this like identity resolution thing which looks like a really really hard problem and then you've got this other kind of resolution which is you want to code up let's say a dui in a similar way or something right imagine also for a new startup both of these problems are really hard to tackle so how did you think about tackling those we started automating that uh so first i mean at the beginning we we, we did the same thing as the competition was doing which was not structuring the data just offering, you know, all of the results and doing some of the regulatory and compliance. There's also compliance filtering that needs to happen. Um, 
There's a lot of laws that this is a regulated industry. There's federal and state laws that limit what can be shared or not shared in a background check. So um, that in the beginning, we did it by hand um, and it was not structured. We're not able to separate the DUI from a murder or from different types of crimes. Um, but then we, we, you know, we knew that structuring the data will be the foundation to create more powerful products and decisioning products. So then we started to structure the data um, in a deterministic way first, when the structure and the fields were allowed just to kind of categorize and filter. But very quickly, we hit the barrier of um, having completely unstructured data and some type of crimes being called different names in different uh, jurisdictions, typos, abbreviations. Um, so it was very hard to, to just organize free text, basically. Um, but I, I, I studied machine learning in, in college and did quite a lot of different projects on that. So for, for uh, NLP classification algorithm, that's actually something not too hard to do. So then we started to move the way of machine learning to better classify and organize the data. We created our own standard of uh, severities of crime and legal decisions. We used millions of data points from our volume that was starting to scale and manual labeling to start uh, to train algorithms to, to classify the data. So that became some of our core IP and, uh, and foundation to, to make the, the, the background check data more actionable. And then we, we built other products on top of that. As you're like, as you're taking that human out of the loop, like I imagine your variable costs can come down really, really significantly, really fast. At that point, are you thinking about how to use price as a lever to gain market share or like it's not as important just because you've got speed and you've got accuracy and you've got the API and the user experience? Um, yeah, so our efficiency and costs are, are lower because we use you know automation rather than, than human labor. Um, that's why we're able to, to do the same amount of business and volume of background checks as companies who have thousands of employees when we had only hundreds. So it's like over 10, 10 X less people. Um, price, I mean, price is a, is a not in the science. Um, we're still working a lot on price. Uh, actually like lower price sometimes doesn't help get more market share of customers, especially in the enterprise or larger customers. Um, larger customers also want to buy a high quality service and the price is sometimes of a reflection of, of the, of the quality of the service or the value you're getting. So we did experiment with price. We can definitely be competitive. Um, but it hasn't been a major, a major factor, I would say to, to gain, to gain market share. Because in some cases we've seen the data world where like price is a, you know, you, you one can go from. 20% to 70% using price as a lever, but it's, it's possible in other cases that, um, uh, well, companies are, they're, they're happy to pay um, as long as they're, as long as you're charging a fair price, um, you don't have to charge an unreasonably low price and companies are happy to pay it if, if the service is good. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think fair price is very important. And so we definitely charge a fair price. You know, we, we can be competitive we like to offer more value to the customer for the similar product they would buy somewhere else. In our space, it's very complex. So the customer is not just buying the data, they're buying accuracy, they're buying good software and workflows for their teams to make hiring decisions. They're buying compliance and auditability in case you know there's um, HR compliance or, or, or litigations. Um, so they really, they're buying a lot of education and customer service to help them navigate this complex area. 
So they really want a strategic partner that, that works on, on hard problems with them. So um, other areas, you know, data can be commoditized. Like sometimes, you know, if you're just buying a data component or something, it's a, it's a race to the bottom and it's commoditized. And some parts of background check can get commoditized at, at scale. But I would say overall for HR or hiring operations team working with us, they, um, they want a high quality product and really good quality of service. Now, if you're if you're working with like an Uber or an Instacart or something, just the mass volume of uh, people that they need to background check is so high that I could see why they would want to do like a direct API integration into you. But like, let's say the average small company, let's say SafeGraph, like, you know, we don't hire that many people, you know, we might have to do background checks on 20 or 30 new people per quarter or something. So for companies like us, is the way to acquire us through like a channel, whether it's a payroll provider or an ATS system, or how do you, and how do you think about going to market to get the, the broad, the, the, you know, the largest global market? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, you know, small and medium sized customers um, also love Checker because of the easy user interface. We have, you know, really simple and, you know, mobile friendly, candidate friendly, um, user experience. So it's just very easy to do a background check, even low volume, make decisions, interact with the candidate in, in this part of the process. And then in terms of acquisitions, uh, yes, we started a channel strategy at, early on in the company because we had an API, actually a lot of, um, HR partners and platforms came to check and say like, Hey, would love to add background checks to our all-in-one HR platform or payroll company. Um, and so the API first strategy allows you to, to do that. Um, so yes, channel is one of our, uh, large, um, way to acquire customers and distribute the product. We're working with a lot of channel partners, um, like rippling payload cities and if it's, um, but also vertical software companies, uh, uh, for team sports, churches, volunteering. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely works well. The API strategy with partners, you know, distributing you to small and medium-sized customers. How would you give advice to other people trying to work on this channel type of strategy? You know, I, I've seen it work super well. I've seen it be uh, take really long time and maybe not so. Are are there kind of like lessons learned uh, or many scars that you've had that you can instill upon us or? Yeah, we, we, we're still working on it. It is a it, it is a more complex motion because it's indirect. You know, it's like the customer, the partner, and you, and you need to to align. There's lots of product decisions to be made, economics decisions to be made. Um, I would say a, a few learnings are number one, it does take time. There's a lot of inertia, so it's not something that you know you get marketing dollars, you get acquisition, and you keep scaling. Like you need to. It's going to take years to put this in motion and, and start to see the, the fruit of the, those partnerships. I would say don't be too greedy on the economics in the early days. I think the most important is to prioritize adoption, um, prioritize product quality. So you can do a lot of partnerships and BD and things like that without a product component. I think those things have been pretty weak because you have to just pay people to different, uh, to different sales teams, et cetera. And at the end of the day, it doesn't change that much for the customer to, to buy it together. So what we've prioritized and works well is really we go to partners and we make sure that with our product, their product gets stronger. So building our product deeply into their product, investing in that joint R&D and product roadmapping and, and 
creating just a great experience for their end customer. That's the priority. If you're able to do that, then the adoption will come and then potential more monetization will come. But prioritizing the product experience of the end customer was a, was kind of a learning to, to keep in mind because sometimes you forget that. Typically at like a SaaS company or gas company, you know, when you're doing a sale, you've got a salesperson. And then after they make that sale, you hand it off to like an experienced customer success manager in the channel thing. Do you, is it, is it similar? Do you have like this like BD sales oriented BD who gets the D, original deal done? And then are you passing it on to like a relationship manager who's like growing that over time? Or is the, is it, is it, is it more combined? No, no, we, we have a similar thing. We have partner acquisition and partner success. Uh, so yes, we, we have teams who are working with new partners to start integrating with Checker. And then once, uh, once the partnership is launched, then we pass it to a partner success manager who continues to work with the, with the partner to make sure that you know the, the product and the solution is uh, is delivering value and and, uh, and and keeps growing. So yeah, similar motion but separated team. When you compensate a salesperson, there's an ACV and it's kind of easy and you can figure it out. Whereas if you think of like the original person making the partnership, okay, that could that could just be that could actually be a net negative because it could take a lot of time and not yield any sales at all. Could end up being hundreds of millions of dollars as a channel. Like, how do you how do you figure out a good way to to compensate that person? Yeah, no, I mean it, it's tricky. It's definitely less predictable than a direct sales motion. Um, so we have to take that into account. Um, there's still a way to estimate the potential not ACV, but, but the, the potential long-term revenue, right? Uh, by looking at the scale of the partner, how many customers they have. And, and, and also as we, as you iterate, you can kind of get some metrics from the other successful partnerships. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's going to be, it's going to be less, less easy to compensate and to have, you know, direct revenue numbers tied to compensation. Uh, it's going to be more, uh, you know, based on other metrics like number of signups, number of partners acquired, um, and, and things like that, more more qualitative metrics. Earlier, we talked about like the data merges and stuff like that. One of the nice things I think with criminal checks is you usually are getting like a social security number. Um, is that is that is that true? Is you are you often getting the social security number, and is that making that merge much easier because other people have this nine digit number? Or how do you think about this like identity merge on a person? Yeah, yeah. So the other second, you know, we talked about the classification issue with the uh, organizing the the criminal records and the data. The other big problem is uh, identity matching, identity resolution. Um, and no, there is no. We we get the SSN number from the consumer. We can use that to develop the address history and do some identity checks that this is the right name, the right address, the, the social security number is correct. Um, but unfortunately, on the other side, the criminal records, the DMV data, all of the data on the other side is not tied to a social security number. Oh, it's not. Okay. It's not. Got it. So this is where you can get a lot of these false positives and false negatives yes. come in because there could be another Daniel Yanis who is like doing all this bad stuff and can get merged in with with yeah. a, okay interesting. So we have we, we need to use you know complex algorithms and also like you know non probabilistic algorithms for identity resolution and matching. There's lots of research and and science and papers around identity resolution, but we have to use multiple attributes like first name, last name, middle name. Uh, date of birth, addresses, 
driver license numbers. So we, we have to use multiple data points to match identity. And I imagine when someone is applying for, let's say, uh, to be a, uh, a driver at Uber, potentially at the very same time, they're looking at multiple different gig worker um, type of things. Um, and so you could be potentially getting that the same request of that same individual um, within a week from multiple different sources. Is there any like economies of scale that happen there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, over time, like any data business and data company, you know, the you have economies of scale as you start to get, you know, large scale, you can start um, having more buying power on buying the data and um, and you can start to have uh, the same person coming multiple times and have, you know, some reuse of the data or, or or having more value each time to kind of increase the quality of the profile or the picture you have. So there's definitely some of that. Um, one challenge though for us is that we're in a regulated industry that has really strict requirements on the accuracy and the freshness of the data. So there are lots of uh, data points that we cannot reuse and need to have fresh information. Um, but that being said, yes, the scale of data does help us improve accuracy, quality, speed um, as we scale. And now we're doing over 30 million background checks a year. And we've covered, I think, over 70 to 80 million people in the U.S. So we have a pretty good coverage of the of the U.S. working populations, which uh, which gives some interesting insights. Yeah. Now, you're also now you started in the U.S., but now you're also doing Canada in the EU um, and how do you think about as you like move international because for in the us alone you've got all these different state regulations they're asking different things now you've got all these international regulations i imagine it just adds like massive complexity to to the workflow yeah yeah no absolutely i mean we're not just like a software company we have a whole dependency on uh the physical world the governments the compliance data laws it's it's very complex it's very fragmented so um so yeah global is very hard uh what i tried to not do international as long as possible that was one of the first advice i would give is like if you have a big us market don't go internationally too early like make sure you 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 grow as fast by focusing um so we did that for the first six years but last year uh our customers were really demanding and asking for international so that was a uh, uh, a limitation on our growth that we had to go uh, explore and we are doing pretty well in the US. So we decided last year to start the, the long journey of doing international. Um, they are, it is complex, everything you said, there's also, you know, GDPR and, and uh, all kinds of privacy laws in different countries. Uh, the background check supply chain is completely different in every country, the laws as well, there's language on top of that. One thing that is a bit simpler in other countries is the justice system is not as fragmented as in the US. For example, in the UK, you can hit one data source and have all of the centralized records for the country. That is simpler than 6,000 courthouses in the US. Um, so there are some places where the data is a bit more centralized, um, but, uh, but outside of that, it is very complex because you have 200 countries, you have countries we don't have the infrastructure like in the US, um, and, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot of work in some ways, the decentralization in the U S in some ways is a feature for you, not a bug, because it makes it very, very difficult for someone else to, to, to do something. 
yeah, the complexity actually makes that we have a business. It's because there is a lot of hard work to be done to um, create a simple product for the customers. Interesting. Now, I, it, it does seem like like your data, or at least the data asset, could be really interesting, whether it's to a nonprofit or academia or to governments looking at trends on rehabilitation or employment, or how have you thought about making it? But obviously, it's very sensitive data, so you have to you can only make it available in some sort of aggregated form. How have you thought about working with some of these entities? Yeah, yeah. So it, it is very sensitive personal data and, and we we care a lot about privacy and the consumer and helping them. Our, our mission at Checker is to build a fair future and, and really to help create opportunities for people. So we care a lot about re-entry, fair chance, helping people with criminal records, getting back into the workforce. Um, so on, on that topic, actually, we partner with the MIT to, um, to do studies with their economics department um, around recidivism and criminality and, and access to jobs. So, so we are partnering with, uh, with leading academic institution um, and sharing and working with them uh, by sharing some anonymized aggregate data to, to help them uh, better understand and, and study this space. And we will work on publishing those results and and helping you know governments and and businesses uh, better 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 help uh, you know solve some of the social problems. Got it. Is there a way to tie it back to let, let, let's say people who have had jail time? Is there a way to tie it back to specific prisons? So these prisons are better at rehabilitation than others, or specific jurisdictions, or specific types of crimes? Yeah. So I think. Um, Right now, we're looking more at specific type of crimes, and we're looking also at the the time dimension. So, what is the likelihood of reoffense? Re you know, after one year, two years, three years, four years. And what what was fascinating is the likelihood of reoffense after after one year drops extremely low. So, the, the the first year of getting out of prison is very important. You know, for the person to to get a job to get housing to to get kind of their foundation back if that happens then the recidivism rate is is really minor is is into the low single digit percent um, oh wow that's yeah. that's awesome yeah. okay so like let's get these let's get people a job let's get them on their feet once we can do that now they can be they feel like they're productive members of society They've got a lot to lose, so it, so they they you know they're they're excited, etc. Interesting, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, employment is the employment and housing, but employment allows to get income to pay for housing and everything is the number one success criteria for for getting out of prison. It it sounds pretty tri trivial, but it is it is actually very you know hard for for people to to get employment uh, when they, when they get out, and there's not a lot of structures and support. So that's one big area that we're focused on, um, you know, funding, working with nonprofits and also helping employers uh, be more open to giving second chances and, and, and jobs to people. And, and employment is not just about the money. When, when you're, when you're at a job, you, um, you, you, you're, you're gaining self-worth from that job. You feel like you're contributing back to people. You're helping people. You know, all jobs are about helping people do things and, and you feel like you're a better part of society, I imagine. Yes, 100%. I mean, one of the hardest things, you know, I, I went to multiple prison visits and talked to inmates. One of the hardest things is really the, the, the psychological um, stigma and, and, uh, and, and, and pressure and, and shame sometimes that people have, you know, getting out of prison. So it's really important to 
rebuild confidence and 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 self worth. And so yes, that's absolutely right. Like having a job is a big part of that uh, that process. And you you and you guys are promoting this. You're calling it like fair chance hiring. Is is that right? That's um, right. And, yeah. and what I assume that means basically also companies should they could choose not to see certain things. Um, so maybe they deem a, a certain type of crime, maybe like a drug possession from X number of years ago is no longer relevant. Um, and then they could, they could, they don't even have to, you, you can filter that out before it even gets to them. Is that the way you do it? That's right. That's exactly right. That's, that's fair chance. It's, you know, looking at your hiring policies and questioning, you know, does it really, is this information really relevant? Is that type of crime posing any risk or even relevant to the job? And then we build products so on. That's why we needed to do that um, standardization and segmentation of the data, because then we were able to build a product called CheckRSS, which is like a rule engine, which allows customers for each one of the job to configure the type of crimes that they care about, don't care about, on what time frame. And that is the key. Yeah, so it's, it's not just on a per employer basis, but it's on a per job. So for an accounting job, you might care about petty theft, but on some other job that might not show up or something. That's exactly right. And you have all of those marijuana possessions that are really not relevant anymore with the legalization of marijuana. Um, DUIs, uh, you know, traffic violations are not relevant if you're not driving. There's, there's lots of uh, simple things like this that uh, employers can make and uh, actually allows millions of people to be qualified and, and get uh, opportunities. And for the business, it's great because you get access to more talent. And right now, there's not enough, you know, supply and workers. Now, you're 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 also at the same time like interacting directly with consumers, um, and you're building different products for them, whether it's to help people expunge old records or you know, etc. What what are you know, so in some ways you're like you're you're like a B two B company becoming also a B two C company. Usually, you see it go the other way. Like, is there any interesting learnings from that? Yeah, so the, the the consumer, we call them the candidates, the job candidates. Um, I've always been a user of our product because we need to interact with them as part of this process to get their consent, their authorization. Um, we, we provide services to them if there's any inaccuracies and they want to dispute the records, they, they work with us. We have multiple they, they get a, They're essentially getting a copy every because yeah. that's the law, right? And so then they can go see that. In some ways, it's like a beautiful law for you because now you're 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 you all these employers have to introduce you to every single uh, consumer that comes in, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So we we care a lot for the candidates and the consumers. We want to help them go through that process, educate them, you know, fix any potential uh, errors that can happen, uh, even at the source. And uh, more recently, like you said, we. We also have a Checker Foundation um, where we build nonprofit products, and the Expressman product is one of those. So we uh, we created a, a national website to expunge and clear criminal records, and uh, and we're working on funding that from uh, from some of the Checker um, resources and, and external as well. But this 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 um, motion, this B to C motion, in some ways requires like a little bit of a different DNA than the than the original B to B motion. Does that mean you have to like hire all these new types of people that have more of that DNA? Or how does how does one like make that transition? Yeah, yeah. I mean it it's really hard to be a B2B and a B2C company at the same time. Very few companies have uh, successfully done that or move from one to the other. Um, like LinkedIn has done it kind of from B2C to B2B uh, monetization. 
But so for us now, we're a B2B company. So the monetization is from the business and the customer. We see the consumer as a, almost as a, another customer or different persona or user of the customer. They're usually tied with one of our customers. And all of the products we build for them are not monetized. They're, they're free. So it makes it a little bit easier. We're not monetizing the consumers who are providing free services to them. And that's also part of the, the customer value. Um, so we we do have, um, we are building, you know, we have a few, we have product managers and engineers who are focused on more consumer products and designers as well. But uh, it is not a, a big part of our platform and monetization. You, you can see, like, if you think uh, FICO, so Will Lansing, the CEO of FICO, he was a guest on World of DAS. And, um, you know, the, they have their, their big businesses, B2B. But they've got a very substantial MyFICO business. Uh, originally, it was like you, where everything was free. But now that they have all these, they have lots of products that they can also upsell people, and monetize. You can imagine a scenario long term where a checker could be could be doing those things. Yeah, yeah, we we could definitely imagine that. I mean, my vision for the long term is to build infrastructure for the future of work, and uh, and to build more products. And the worker is a big, you know, component of those products. So. I do think we'll continue to build free products for the workers and the consumers. You could think about potentially, you know, like a reusable uh, background and profile and, and, and having kind of a hub where the consumer can get access to more services and, and potentially long-term, some of the services could be, could be monetized. Uh, so definitely there is some of that opportunity longer term. So on the, on the B2C side, like I remember the first time I looked for an apartment in San Francisco, I was advised to like get a credit check before I looked for the apartment. I remember like having this like paper credit check and I, I did it at my own expense. And then I would show it to the landlord beforehand. And that kind of allowed me to like move up in the line of like a new apartment. But I've never seen a candidate come to an interview with like their criminal check already in hand or something. Like, why is that not done? Yeah, that's true. Um... So a, a, a few reasons why. So first, like right now, you don't really know about a place to get your free background check yourself as a consumer, right? Like that's not really a thing. Um, we did build a, a website called betterfuture.com that allow consumers to get a free background check. It's mostly to help people with criminal records to understand their picture and, and help them be prepared. Um, so that's one, one of our free consumer products. And... Um, and then we are working with uh, tenant screening and, and uh, real estate customers who are doing credit check and uh, background check uh, on, on, on potential tenants. So it is part of the process, but it hasn't been uh, traditionally done by the consumer presenting it because there is not that much consumer adoption of, of checking your, your, your background check. All right. Now think, think about product expansion as you're thinking about product expansion. So, you know, um, we have this theory that we wrote about in the DAS Bible that it's much easier for a data service to acquire another company than for a SaaS company to acquire another company because SaaS companies have, um, you know, like a, just a whole UI that makes it really, really difficult to, to um, do the integration. First of all, do you agree with that theory? And then if so, like, how do you think about acquisitions as a growth strategy? No, I agree with that theory. That's what makes, uh, you know, product acquisition integrations hard. Um, they still happen a lot. I mean, a lot of companies are buying other products. It's just it's just harder to create a user experience that's the same. So for Checker is a data company and a SaaS company. We have all of the data, but we also have a lot of uh, APIs and workflows and dashboards and automation. So so we have that that also similar issue with the with the user interface and the dashboard to integrate. Um, 
but uh, but we actually even started running the business in a separate way. So we have a data business at Checker that is like really the data company, and then we have like more the the SaaS company on top of that. And uh, we so we have done, SaaS companies like a fixed price and data companies a variable like per API call type of thing, or or is it all uh, just like one bundled thing? No, it's uh, it's it's different. So our, our data company sells data to Checker as an internal customer, but also to other you know, other companies, you know, credit companies, identity companies, other bank. So there's like someone who owns like a the internal checker data company PL type of thing or something. Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. Oh, a, that's cool. Okay. There's a, there's a CEO of the of the data business. And so that that's run independently. We have built that business through MA and I agree with you, like it's much easier to buy data companies and uh, you know start to integrate the data sets and things. There's still a lot of work to do too integrate the data sets and create, you know, unified products because you still want some type of APIs and stuff and, and dashboards, but it is easier. So definitely we've done a lot of MA on the data side. The, the pricing structure, actually the background check pricing has always been transactional because it, there's some um, some viable costs uh, and that's how the industry has been. So we kept it transactional and usage-based. Um, some of our new add-on products like Checker SS are subscription products. So we have a mix of both. If you think of like the overall employment verification market, okay, where there's like the criminal background check market, that's Checker. And um, and you're 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 fast becoming like by far the biggest company in that space. Um, but then there's also the, you know, like kind of a the adjacent market which is um, verification of uh, someone's employment history, maybe their um, sa salary status or other types of things. Did they work at this place? I don't know, maybe even like their history of like, did they go to this college or something? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that there, in that case, there's like the a huge player, the work number, which is a big dominant player. There's like these um, new players that are trying to oppose the work number, like True Work and Argyle. Like, how do you think about that market as with your market? It does seem like it could be one big company in a way, right? So how, how do you see that happen, changing over time? Yeah, yeah. So um, even for us, for, for background checks, there's lots of components. The criminal and DMV ones are some of the big ones we started with. But a lot of our customers want what you said, like credit checks, employment verification, education verifications, uh, verifying cred credentials and licenses, doing references. There's lots of things. We have 36, actually, it's what we call screenings as an offering to customers. And we're definitely growing into those adjacent ones. Um, so, so that's a part of our expansion and what customers are buying in general in, in their background check. Uh, we do partner with a lot of companies for those um, uh, additional screenings. And uh, we do partner with all of the companies you mentioned. We, we are partnering with uh, the work number um, who's big on employment verifications. And, um, and, and uh, I'm also excited about the new newcomers in the space, like companies like Argyle and TrueWork that... Uh, we're also uh, close to and, um, and and partnering with. Now, if you now when you were starting um, uh, Checker, the background the background check companies were super fragmented, as you mentioned. There's like a thousand of them. No one probably had more than ten or fifteen percent market share. Um, that's a great place to attack, um, especially if the play overall has low NPS. Um, if you if you were advising like a true worker Argyle because they're they're attacking this um, space, you have the work number. The work number has a I don't know maybe over fifty percent market share. Um, 
a harder uh, place to attack. How how should those companies, if you were advising them, how should they think about attacking a market where there's a there's a clear winner? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's harder. Like uh, the work number has been smart as a business, and and you know sometimes it takes decades to build a, a defensible data business. You know, LexisNexis is another example. Or this, and and so they've built kind of an exchange of data, right? Like they go to the employer. The employer, you know, uses them to do employment verification and gives them their company employment records in exchange. Yep. yep. And so if you if so you it's like a data co-op that happens. Like a data co-op, exactly. So they've built over 10, 20 years a data co-op. Um, so that is hard to disrupt because you know it's hard to go to, to ATT, one of the big customers there, and say, hey, ATT, you know, in addition to the work number, can you work with us and give us your data? There's no motivation for to to work with the second you know vendor um so that's 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 what it's tricky to to disrupt uh, a, a data business sometimes especially when there's data co-op from from the customer um so i think the, the you know i think it's it's again it's going back to the customers and the nps so you gotta find uh the pain point of the customer a customer is not going to change or buy something new if there's no pain so it's like what is the pain for the customer um there are trends like privacy and security and user experience who are, you know, good trends that are a bit hard to do for bigger companies. So, um, so that's, that's going back to the pain. And then I do think uh, what I like about the Argyle model or even Plaid, what they've done as a company is you have to come at the problem. You can't just like frontally compete with the existing player and do the same thing they do just faster, cheaper. That's not going to work. That's going to be enough value. You have to come at it tangentially and uh, and with a completely different value prop or approach, um, and so I like Plaid or Argyle approach, which is saying, "Hey, um, let's put the consumer back in charge of their own data," and and that goes well with all of the you know privacy trend and 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 data trends, um, and let's say, "Hey, it's the consumer's data, so so we can use the consumer to give us permission access to the data." So I thought instead of going to the business to get the data about the consumer, going directly to the to the consumer, I think is um is a smart it's a smart uh, tangential approach and and could potentially work to create an alternative. When you, when you think about the whole hiring process, like it's super hard, it's expensive, both from the job seeker side and from the employer side. Um, a lot of companies are bad at it. A lot of job seekers are bad at it. Um, background checks are kind of like the very last step or one of the last steps in the process. Like, are there other parts that you wish like there was another company like Checker that was working to improve? Yeah, I mean, uh, I can think at the own hiring we do at Checker. Um, hiring is super hard. You're right. Like it's every step is hard. It's full of uh, human bias and inaccuracies. And at the end of the day, you make a big decision for your for your job and for hiring someone based on just chatting with them or, you know, for a few hours, it's kind of crazy, but it is what it is. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think, um, the job search to me sounds just so inefficient. It's kind of like you're throwing your resume and applying, clicking apply to tens and tens of jobs. <laughs> and it's like a black hole. And from the, the employer side, it's the same thing and getting thousands of resumes and candidates and, you have to triage it or um i i do feel like it's it's quite painful and manual and technology could maybe do more um than than what's available currently but but it is hard to 
to get to the scale of a LinkedIn or Indeed and, and build better products there. So it, it's a hard, hard space, um, very focused on the human. It's also so there's credentials are so important to basically go through that filter. Um, and obviously, if you go back to like your, your original point about giving more people access to employment, a lot of the people who most need access to the people who don't have like the credentials, but they do have a lot of potential. Is there some way of, I don't know, putting in a test or I don't know, some other type of thing in the process, the low friction thing that could, you know, sh uh, tease out these high potential people? Yeah, I mean, there's tons and tons of companies and startups doing tests and assignments and assessments and video interviews. There's hundreds and hundreds of tools, psychological tests, you know, skill tests. Um, so I think I think those are good. Uh, it, it is just so dependent on each job and each 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 thing. There's no there's no standardization yet or or silver bullet. So I think that's an interesting space, uh, but it's still early and and so custom and variable. Um, I don't know what, you know, some things that are maybe closer to what we do, we're looking at is the, especially on the more, uh, you know, frontline workers and, and not knowledge workers, like, like more, uh, um, you know, lower wages jobs, there's really an imba imbalance between the employer and the worker. Like there's no LinkedIn for, um, for non-knowledge work, uh, from the outside It's very hard for workers to know how much they're going to make on platforms or on website, what's a good employer or not, you know, like we have, um, um, what's the, um, the review websites for uh, Glassdoor, we have Glassdoor, but you know, there's not Glassdoor for, for everything. So I do think more transparency for the workers, uh, could be something valuable to help people know where to apply and what, what jobs would be good for them. So, so that's something, uh, I think, uh, uh, would have potential and, and would help the, both the workers and, and the businesses. Now, over the years, when I've gotten to know you, I've I've asked you a lot of questions about like just general company building. You're kind of a student of building companies. Like, what, what are one, some of the things maybe you've changed your mind about company building over the years? Company building, yeah, I mean that's that's a big topic. Lots of learnings. Uh, you know, it's seven years since I started. Uh, I feel like every year I. I learned a lot and, and changed my mind on, on many things. Um, I mean, I would say one, one thing that, uh, that I'm, I'm learning and working on, like even now on company building is, um, you know, on culture, on culture building. I'm, I'm an engineer founder. There's lots of engineer founders. I like things to be like, you know, very organized with plans, you know, uh, cause, cause, cause I, I like them very detail oriented and I like all of this. And also as an engineer, I like to fix what's broken. So always focus on like what's broken, constructive feedback, what to improve. I'm always in that mindset. All of this is good, but you know, also I would say for company building, it's important, like two things, like it's important to, you can't prescribe and control everything. Like maybe an engineer like me would like. So adding more flexibility in the system, it's okay if not everything is like, a perfect process and, and, and leaving, you know, some chaos is actually good sometimes for innovation. And then on the positive versus things that can be improved, um, as a CEO, like if you focus too much on the negatives always and things that can be improved, it's not as positive and exciting of, and motivating of a culture. So one thing I really learned is it's really important to spend time celebrating the wins a lot more positive than the negatives even if there's a list of a million things to improve, like 
talking and communicating constantly about like what's going well and the positives and the things we're proud and we achieved. That to me was not a natural thing, but I, I've really learned to, to do more of that. And I've seen the benefits are pretty awesome. Like it creates a lot more positivity and motivation in the company to then go fix the things that are broken. So I'd say it's mostly like kind of communication and culture building and also the, the mindset of, uh, of the leader or CEO on, uh, on feedback. And how do you think, I mean, there's these things that are broken. Every company is riddled with stuff that's broken everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, but, and then there's also, uh, which is great. You can fix those and you kind of know what the ROI is of fixing those things. And then there's the, the things that are starting to work pretty well. And if you invested more time on those, you may have an unbounded, um, um, opportunity of, of growing that. How do you, how do you know how to put what resources toward which side? Yeah. I mean, I, it's hard. Like I, I, you never know perfectly. It's, uh, and, and I don't know if we know either, but, uh, I would say I, I tended to be too much focused on fixing the broken things rather than investing into the things that work. I think that's also an important thing is like focus on what's working, what's growing, which is also more exciting and double down on what's going well, rather than spending, you know, all the time fixing these things that are broken. So it is a balance. We need to do some of both. Um, and it's important to step back to prioritize, you know, company goals, initiatives for longer period of time. But that's definitely a shift that mentally I, I, I've made and I'm, I'm working on making. Um, it's going to have more ROI to double down what's working well, rather than trying to fix, what, fix what's, what's everything that's, that's not working. It's okay to have broken things like, all companies have broken things and all companies are a mess inside. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. 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 A couple of personal questions. So um, I, I've noticed there's just like a massive number of French founders in Silicon Valley, way more than even people, let's say from Germany, which also has like, you know, incredible engineers, et cetera. You know, some, even there's some investors like Jason Lemkin who basically made a name for himself by like just investing in French founders. And I personally invested in over six French founders, like, you know, gorgeous Airbyte Streamlit, um, et cetera. Like, do you have a theory as to like why this is a phenomena? Um, or, you know, is, is it just like random that it's happening or what, why do you think this is going on? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, so I don't know if, I don't know if that's, we're biased because maybe we're seeing the French founders, um, but, but sounds like maybe you have, you have some data points. I, I'm I mean, not again, it could be, it could be just my own experience. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Could, could be. So I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I would, I can say for me, so first, like. So I'm I'm uh, I'm French, but my parents were immigrants. So you know I'm I'm an immigrant uh, myself coming to to the U.S. Um, I think so even your parents if, immigrated to France, and then you immigrated to. So you're like a double immigrant in a I'm way. A double immigrant. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there is a pattern of uh, immigrants, you know, starting more companies. I think more than half of companies are started by immigrants. So that's a pattern. And. Um, I think a lot of French people immigrate from France, emigrate from France and go to other countries. I think even growing up in France culturally, it's very much a trend for um, young college grads to finish college or even before college, going to other countries to get international experience. Okay. So even if like you work for, like, if you're in the U S and you work for McKinsey, you usually stay in the U S where it's like, if you're in, if you're a, a French student, you go work for your McKinsey, you might go to London, you might go to Hong Kong, you might go to some other type of place. Yeah, that's right. Okay, interesting. That's right. Could be tied to the, 
you know, imperial uh, history of France and the UK as well, who, you know, just went all over the world. And so that continues in, there's a lot of French people who just go work uh, all over the world. Um, I don't know, there's also like the, the risk-taking in the DNA and the culture. Uh, there's some cultures that have more risk-taking or less risk-taking, just part of, um, of, 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 the, of the culture. France is quite risk-taking. I don't know, like in my education, everything, they kind of push you. Well, to- even though it's fairly risk-taking, it does seem like a lot of the well-known French entrepreneurs live in the U.S. So they didn't, they chose not to, for whatever reason, do it in France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I left France because it was not the best place to start a company, it was not as you know, in the US, I think the US is a great place to start companies because there's that culture of being pioneers and taking risk and 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 doing your own thing that is really encouraged and celebrated. In France and many European countries, it it, it used to not be as celebrated. I think it's changing since I, I left, you know, over 10 years ago. It's changing and there's more and more startups ecosystem and culture. But back 10 years ago, you know, the, the dream path for, for a college grad or an engineer was not to start a startup. It was to go work in a big company and, and things like that. And then when I found the US and the startup ecosystem here, um, it's just much, it was much easier to start a company here. And that there's that positivity and optimism, like much more optimistic view of taking risk than in French, which sometimes can be a, a bit more you know, realistic or sometimes pessimistic on, on taking risk. Interesting. All right. Last question. We ask all of our guests, if you could go back in time, uh, what advice would you give to your, your younger self? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I would say um, founding the company. I mean, things I struggled with were, you know, team building and and hiring the right people, learning how to manage. That was the first time in my life I had to manage people, and and you know, it takes time and it was kind of under pressure, accelerating learning to to become a leader and manage. So, um, so I would say, yeah, taking the time to build connections and really. Uh, and building closer connections with the, with the employees and the leaders and being a bit more flexible. I think that's, that would be one thing. I went through a lot of iterations to, to put together leadership teams and hire the right people. So investing more in that, I think is very important. Uh, I learned a lot through that process. Um, and then maybe another, oh yeah, another advice more on like business and products. Like when you get investors and VC money, as a founder, you feel that pressure to grow and do returns and revenue. And so it's, of course, that's important and that that's good, but it's important to not be too much under that pressure. And I talked to a lot, of, a lot of founders who really feel heavily that pressure of the, of the growth and financials and revenue. It's important to grow. And of course, that's what we want to do. But the, at, I was maybe a bit too obsessed by the bookings and the revenue and the growth into doing the company strategy and direction. So I would uh, advise myself and maybe others to the, the best way to grow is actually to build a great product, delight customers and focus, like focus on less things. Because as founders, we kind of like to do a lot of things, with a lot of ideas, focus on one or two and really try to say no to things. Great product to solve customer problems and then delight the customer. And if you do those things, the growth, the financial growth will come as an outcome. You have to be kind of confident that it will come. I know it's hard, 
but that's maybe an advice for myself on on don't stress as much about the the revenue and the growth. Uh, it's it's a byproduct of doing product and customer delight well. All right, that's awesome. That's a great advice. Um, uh, I, I follow you on Twitter. Where where do people, if they want to learn more about you, uh, is, is that the best place, or where, where should they go to see you on the interwebs? Yeah, um, I haven't been, uh, you know, great and and uh, and a lot on social media, but I'm actually spending, starting to spend more time there. Um, I'm quite active uh, more on LinkedIn, and I'm 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 growing and growing into Twitter. So yeah, LinkedIn and Twitter. Follow me, and uh, I'm gonna interact and be more and more present. All right, Daniel Denise, thank you so much for being with us on uh, World of DAS. Thank you, Aaron. That was fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph.